Gracious, merciful, and sovereign Heavenly Father, you are our King, you are our Master, you are our Lord, and Father, we have humbly given to you our songs of praise, our prayers of petition. Now, Father, we give you our hearts, we give you our minds, and we give you our ears that we may hear what you have for us as we continue our worship. Father, we know that unless your Holy Spirit goes before us and is our teacher, nothing of any consequence will happen eternally. And so, Father, we pray very humbly that as we worship, that you'll be pleased to open our eyes that we might behold you more clearly for Christ's sake. Amen. How should we respond to a world system that is out basically to remove our biblical heritage and replace it with a godless, humanistic, atheistic, socialistic style of living. What is our response? What, what should we do to that? What is our reaction to that system of this world which is out to remove our biblical heritage? That's essentially what we find in the book of Daniel in the life of this young 15-year-old boy who was taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar, transported to the Babylonian kingdom, and basically he went through a predetermined brainwashing plan to remove his biblical heritage. That would be the law of Moses from Daniel's life. He was subjected to a re-education by heathen wisdom. He was subjected to a reorientation with heathen food. And he was subjected to a redefining of who he was in his personhood by giving him heathen names. What was his response? That's why we're studying the book of Daniel because essentially that's what we have going on in our culture in the U.S. today a system that is out designed to remove our biblical heritage and replace it with a godless, humanistic, atheistic, socialistic style of living. What is it we can learn from Daniel, a 15-year-old boy who models for us what it means to be a detectable disciple, or as we would say it in our culture today, how to be a Christian in an unchristian world. We saw last week that the very first characteristic of a detectable disciple is to have an uncompromising spirit an uncompromising spirit. Where the scripture draws the line, there's a clear biblical mandate or injunction. We draw the line and we don't violate that. That's what we saw from Daniel's life. Today we're going to see the second characteristic of a detectable disciple, a Christian in a non-Christian world, and that is to have an unhindered sanctification. An unhindered sanctification. Now sanctification or sanctify means to set apart, to purify, to make holy. And there are two features of the sanctification process. The first being that taking something which is common and giving it a very sacred cause. Taking that which is common and giving it a sacred cause. And then the second phase of sanctification is taking that which is common and qualifying it to fulfill its sacred cause. Now in the life of the believer, sanctification is the inward spiritual work which the Lord Jesus Christ accomplishes in a person by the work of the Holy Spirit when he calls that person, man or woman, to saving faith. He separates from our natural desire and love for sin and the world system. He puts a new principle within us, in our hearts, and gives us new desires and makes us have a practical godliness in our conduct and in our lifestyle. Now sanctification is the outward outcome an inseparable consequence of what we would call regeneration or being born again. In fact, it is the only certain evidence of the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Justification deals with our standing before God. 
Romans chapter 5, you're justified by faith alone, you now have access to God. That is because you get credit for the sinless perfection and perfect obedience of Christ and he views us differently. That is justification. Sanctification is the evidence of your justification. In other words, you give evidence of your fact that you are justified by faith alone because of your conduct and it gives evidence of the fact the Holy Spirit is working in your life by giving you a sacred cause and qualifying you to fulfill that cause. You see, it is revealed, sanctification, our holiness, is revealed by our obedience to the Word that God produces in us through the Holy Spirit what I would call practical godliness. Or another way of defining that would be the habit of being of one mind with God. That's sanctification. Now notice in John 17, in Jesus' prayer to his Father, he requests God to sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth, Jesus said. And just as Daniel had the knowledge of and the understanding of God's word, for him it would be the law of Moses, the Mosaic law. He understood that and he used that as a filter for all the things that he was given, the information he was subjected to. And later on, the situations in which he was thrust upon, he used his knowledge of the Mosaic law, for us it would be the scripture, to know how to make those decisions consistent with his sacred cause. You see, God at our conversion takes the commonness of our lives and he gives us a very, very sacred cause. And that cause is to love God, enjoy him forever, and to live a life that brings him glory. That's our sacred cause, dearly beloved. He takes the commonness of people like you and me, common, ordinary people, and he draws us from the system of this world. He gives us a new heart. He puts his new spirit within us. And he qualifies us to fulfill that cause. And that great cause that he qualifies us for is to love him, enjoy him forever, and to live for his glory. And the way he does that is he takes that heart of stone, which is dead to sensitive things and spiritual things, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh that is now sensitive to spiritual things. We now have a desire that is different. You can read about that in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 to 27. And then he puts his spirit within us. You see, he not only takes the commonness of our lives and gives us a grand cause, but also he qualifies us to live for that cause. And so we need to be like Daniel, who took that information and made his decisions that would not hinder his sanctification, but it would reveal his sanctification. An uncompromising spirit and an unhindered sanctification. He made choices that did not hinder his holiness, his sanctification. Now that is not an option for the true believer who wants to really become a disciple of Christ, who wants to be a detectable disciple and be a Christian in a non-Christian world. So don't say today that it's only a matter of opinion. For it's a matter of opinion today, it'll become a matter of practice tomorrow. No one has an error in judgment without sooner or later having an error in practice. When in doubt of what to do, because there is no biblical injunction, no clear biblical teaching on what to do, decide for the alternative that will not hinder your personal sanctification, your personal holiness. Decide whatever the cost for that option, that will reveal your personal holiness. In other words, if you're going to err, err on the side of holiness. When there's no biblical injunction, decide on the side of your holiness. Now, when you do that, you decide for the sake of holiness. It not only pleases the Father, but it will assure you that you are in the middle of his will. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.13. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. You want to be in God's will? 
then choose the side of holiness. You're guaranteed to be pleasing God, but you're also guaranteeing the fact that you're in His will. Now, there's a lot of confusion about God's will. Let me deal with that for a moment. Turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. And we see this. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of the law. Now notice, two kinds of revelation, two kinds of God's will. There's that which is secret and that which is revealed. Now most of the time, you and I spend all of our exhaustive input and our frustration trying to find out the secret things of God. Well, guess what, folks? You're not going to find them out. And why is that? It's because they're secret. You're not designed to find them out. They're not for you to know. What we are to know are the things that are revealed. You get frustrated and irritated and angry because you're trying to find God's will and it's something secret and you're not going to find it. You'll only find out what are the secret things of God when you understand what the revealed things of God are. Now let me give you the revealed things of God, which is common for all of us, for all of God's elect children. His will is the same for you as it is for me as the same is for Pastor Barry. You see, because God's will has to do with our person, not our position in life has nothing to do with your job, your car, your house, your human relationships. It has everything to do with your personhood in Christ. Now, here are the six things that are God's revealed will, that if you want to find out the secret things, make sure you're in the, in the revealed things. Here they are. You're saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering, and saying thanks. Got it? Now, let me go through them quickly. Here are the six things that reveal God's will. It's the same for you as it is for me. God's will is common to all of us if we're in Christ. Quit looking for the secret things. You're only going to frustrate yourself. Quit looking for the sign that says this is a job you should take. You're never going to find that out. It's secret. You'll only find it out when you know the six things that are revealed because that's what for us. So here they are. The first one is these apply to God's elect, those chosen before the foundation of the world, that you're saved, that you have a saving relationship to God the Father through the Son. 2 Peter 3.9 the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. With reference to the elect. Now, the reason the Lord Jesus has not come back in all of his glory at the second coming is because all of God's elect have not come to saving faith. He will not return until all of his elect come back to saving faith. That's what we see in John 10 when he says, I will not lose one that you gave me. So the first thing is, you have to ask yourself the question, am I saved? Do I have a saving relationship to God the Father through God the Son? Secondly, am I spirit-filled or spirit-led? Ephesians 3, 17 and 18. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, be led with the Spirit. That's God's will for you. Be saved, be spirit-led. Thirdly, sanctify. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Next, submissive. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 15. Now, notice the context of this. It's the context of responding to human authority. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. In the midst of your submissiveness, what do you do? You do good in the midst of responding to your human authorities. Do good. You're in the middle of God's will. Let him take care of the consequences and the effectiveness. 
How about suffering? You realize that's part of God's will for us? First Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 1 Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What are you supposed to do when you're suffering? Gripe, complain, moan? No, do good. That's how you know you're in God's will when you suffer. You suffer for a reason, so that you can do good while you're suffering to show that you're a detectable disciple and help people realize you're exposing their foolishness of this world system. So don't gripe and complain when you're suffering. You're in God's will. Just do good. Trust the results and the effectiveness to him. How about 1 Peter 3.17? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And then lastly, saying thanks. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You don't want to know what God's revealed will is? It's this. Are you saved, spirit-filled, sanctified, submissive, suffering, and saying thanks? That's revealed to you, and friends, you're never going to find out the secret things until you make sure that you're understanding the revealed things. We must never forget that God never has and never will use the means of man as a means of redeeming his own. He'll use man as the means, but he'll never use the means of man. We must decide for the side of holiness. Decide for the side of our being a detectable disciple. Just make sure that you're in God's will and know those six things. It's the revealed will of God for us and you have the assurance that God is involved in your life and you'll discover the secret things when you understand the revealed things. Now what amazes me about the mindset that is so concerned with the methodology of man is its pathetic ignorance. The idea that you're going to win people to the Christian faith by showing them that after all you're just like them is not only theologically and psychologically, it's a profound blunder. Those who embrace that strategy seem to have no knowledge of human nature. The fact is the world expects you and I to be holy because you say that you're associated with the person and work of Jesus Christ. What do they associate with the name of Christ? They think of holiness. Therefore, you say you're a follower of Christ. What do they expect of you? They expect you to be sanctified. They expect you to be holy. They expect you to make decisions that reflect your holiness. They expect you to have an unhindered sanctification. You see, the world expects that. The world probably expects us to be more holy than we do ourselves. You see, they're looking for detectable disciples. And the Lord is never going to use the means of man to redeem his own. He'll use us as the means, but he'll never use the means of man. You see, the teaching of the New Testament from beginning to end is really quite simple. That the entire system of this world is out to brainwash us, to remove our biblical heritage. And so the person who is assigned to that system is wrong. Because their views are wrong, because their whole view of the world is wrong. And that is because they are wrong themselves. That's why people need a savior. It's because they're wrong, the system of this world. Now Daniel knew that about King Nebuchadnezzar and his system. Because Daniel knew his scripture, the Mosaic law. And that's why he could handle the learning of the Chaldeans. Because he ran it through the grid of the Mosaic law. Now evidence of that fact, that Daniel chose the side of personal holiness, you see later on in the book. No doubt some of the other young Hebrew friends of his, other teenagers, came to him, even the ones who might have said, we are children of God, just like Daniel. 
may have approached him with this ill-fated logic that would go something like this. Daniel, you can be of more good by living and not dying. Because by dying, you're going to cut out your opportunities for usefulness in ministry. It's very likely they could have said that. Now here's to that method of reasoning, that deceitful method of reasoning. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of England, says this. They remain, remain where their conscience tells them they ought not to be. Because they say they are more useful than they would be if they went without the camp. This is doing evil that good may come and can never be tolerated by an enlightened conscience. If an act of sin would increase my usefulness tenfold, I have no right to do it. And if my act of righteousness would appear likely to destroy all my apparent usefulness, I am yet bound to do it. It is yours and mine to do right, though the heavens may fall and follow the command of Christ, whatever the consequences may be. Pursue holiness when in doubt. When the scripture does not give you a clear mandate, choose the side of personal holiness. Consequences and usefulness are nothing to us. Should never be concerns. Consequences and usefulness belong to God. Duty and right are to be our guides. They were Daniel's guides. Characteristics of a detectable disciple, an uncompromising spirit, and an unhindered sanctification. Now what are some of the consequences of living that kind of a lifestyle? The first one we'll see is this. You will have an unashamed boldness. An unashamed boldness. Notice verse 8. Notice as a result of having an uncompromising spirit and an unhindered sanctification, Daniel possessed an unashamed boldness. So the word boldness there does not mean power, passion, or loudness. It means without fear. Daniel was able to answer the situation in which he was thrust without fear because he had an uncompromising spirit and an unhindered sanctification. As a result of that, he had an unashamed boldness that was a function of the grace of God. Notice Daniel didn't hum and haw around, but he told the king's chief official that the king's food would defile him. Daniel knew the commandments of Leviticus chapter 11, where God gave strict prohibitions as to what a Jewish boy could eat or drink. They were forbidden to eat food offered to idols, and that was an activity performed before the food was given to the king. So Daniel was not afraid to speak the truth of a commitment to the word, Lord's word. Now just think how many times you and I give a non-spiritual answer for a spiritual issue. A barometer of whether or not you and I have an uncompromising spirit and an unhindered sanctification is whether or not we have an unashamed boldness to take a stand on God's word. To be a Christian in an unchristian world, that may mean this, that you and I may not be politically correct, but we choose to be biblically correct. An unashamed boldness. And the next we see this. He not only had an unashamed boldness, but he had an unearthly protection. Look at verse 9. In verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart, Daniel purposed in his heart, made up his mind not to defile himself. And notice in verse 9, God caused, God acted in verse 9. Do you see how that works? Daniel purposed, God caused. There's a correlation there. That's because he had an unashamed boldness. He purposed in his heart not to defile himself, to hinder his sanctification, and God responded to that. In verse 8, Daniel made up his mind. In verse 9, verse 9, we see that God worked. God even worked in the heart of the heathen official. Daniel had an unearthly protection. 
the second consequence of a holy life. Now, people have, of the world have some degree for our convictions, even though they may not disagree with, they may disagree with our convictions. But we've got something else going on here in verse 9 that we need to consider. Notice, we see God in his powerful sovereignty producing compassion on the heart of the commander of the officials for Daniel and his friends. Daniel purposed, God caused the heathen official to be compassionate to Daniel. Now look at verses 12 and 13. Who else had compassion on the official? Daniel did because he had an unearthly protection. Notice that Daniel was not a Bible basher. He wasn't a Mosaic law masher. He didn't beat him over the head. He gave him a creative alternative because the, the king's official had said this, Daniel, if I don't feed you the king's food, the king's going to have my head. Who also had compassion on the official, his superior, his authority? Daniel did. He showed compassion on the official by saying, let me give you a creative alternative. Take away the king's food, just give us vegetables and water. And then at the end of 10 days, just test us to see how we compare. And if we don't, are not better, then you will eat the food. Do you see what he did? Daniel had compassion on his authority. How many of us, when we go to work, think about having compassion on our authority when we think they're wrong? You see, that's not the issue. The issue is this. You have an unashamed boldness. And you also have an unearthly protection. You purpose in your heart, God will act. He will cause things to happen. So there's something more going on here, and that is God's sovereignty, having compassion upon the king's official. You see, God even uses non-believers for his intended purpose, to bring glory to himself. If you and I have an uncompromising life, if you and I have an unhindered sanctification, we will have an unashamed boldness, and you'll also have an unearthly protection. Let me try to put this together for you with an example, how all this works together. About 26 years ago, I had to make a decision in my life. My parents were suffering from Alzheimer's rather severely. I needed to come back from Chicago, where I was pastoring a church, and come back to the Pittsburgh area to take care of my parents who were living in northern West Virginia. I knew that if God had called me to preach, then he's the only one who could remove that. As I began to do networking, there were not church opportunities for me in the Pittsburgh area at the time, so I had to find something else to meet my responsibilities. As I did my networking and my investigation, two, opp two opportunities came up to me. One was a political appointment to work at the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., and the other one was to work at PNC in Pittsburgh. So what is God's will? Well, I knew this. God's will is not a job. It's neither the Pentagon nor Pittsburgh. God's will is who I am, where I am, and the job I choose to take, because I have freedom in Christ to do either one. You see, I could be in God's will in either job, because God's will is not a job. It's who I am, where I am. It's those six things. So here's how I made my decision. I did all the investigation. I looked at the six revealed wills of God because I wanted to be in God's will in making this decision. So I knew that I was saved by God's grace. I knew that I was spirit-led, trying to follow the scripture every day. I knew that I was being submissive to the person work of Christ. I knew I was trying to be willing to be suffering. But the two that jumped out at me were this, sanctification and saying thanks. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is God's will for you, your holiness. And then in 5.18, In all things, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I knew this. God's will for me was neither the Pentagon nor Pittsburgh. 
It was being holy and giving thanks either at the Pentagon or in Pittsburgh. That was his will because that's what the Scripture revealed. There's nothing secret about that. I would only find out the secret of which job I should have if I really concentrated on the revealed things of God's will. So here's how I looked at it. I said, I don't compromise well. And I think if I take the job in Washington, D.C., in this political arrangement, I'm going to have a tough time living out my true convictions. And I'm probably going to have a tougher time saying thanks than I would if I worked at a bank. Now, I'd never worked at a bank. Somebody said, could you work at a bank? And I said, sure, I can balance a checkbook. The job, in Pitts, the job in the Pentagon was far more consistent with my educational background because of my engineering. But I made the decision. I think I will have a better chance to be holy and give thanks if I take the job at PNC than I would if I worked in the political environment of Washington, D.C. Because I'm going to have to compromise my convictions and I don't want to do that. So I called my friend who was going to put me up for this political appointment. And I said, thanks for the opportunity, but no thanks because I just don't think I can be holy and give thanks in that environment in Washington, D.C. And he said, you're an idiot. He said, don't you realize what you're giving up? And I said, I'm not giving up a thing. I'm pursuing something because I knew I'd be in God's will. Now, I've been at PNC for 25 years. Now, did God lead me to Pittsburgh? Absolutely. Did God lead me to PNC? Absolutely. But he didn't lead me to a job. He led me to go through a process of making decisions that would make sure that I would err on the side of my personal holiness and give thanks. Somebody said to me, where'd you learn that? I said, you know, I learned it from my 15-year-old boy by the name of Daniel, who taught me this. If you want to be a detectable disciple, Bruce, you've got to have an uncompromising spirit, an unhindered sanctification. And when you do that, God will give you an unashamed boldness and an unearthly protection. May it be so that we understand what Daniel's modeling for us. He's teaching us how we are to respond in an environment that is trying to remove our biblical heritage. May it be so that we are like Daniel for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the clarity of this example of young Daniel a young teenager who was removed from his family, removed from his country, removed from his friends, but he was not removed from his God. And may we understand how we can be detectable disciples, how we can be a Christian in a non-Christian world. Father, give us an uncompromising spirit, an unhindered sanctification. And may we trust you that the results and effectiveness will be in your hands, a sovereign God. Let us purpose in our hearts so that you may act. And may it be so that we will be like Daniel for your glory. Amen.